0: The scripture text for this evening's message is found in the book of 1st John, chapter 4. 1st John 4, verses 7 through 21. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. We also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God Must also love his brother.
1: Let's pray. The words still ring because they're so biblical. You'll be forever mine, I'll be forever yours. Those are sweet. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, we are being killed all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You loved us. You loved us. And nothing will defeat us. We will be forever yours. And you will be forever ours. Because your love is invincible. And that emboldens me now to pray that your love would invincibly manifest itself in this church in the way we love each other. That's what this text and this sermon are intended to achieve. So come and do that great work, I pray, through Christ. Amen. So as we enter Holy Week the aspect of the new birth that I want to focus on is the fact that the new birth creates the connection between God's love for us and our love for each other. If somebody asks you, how does the fact that God loves you Produce your love for others. The answer is. The new birth creates that connection. That's the answer. The new birth. Creates the connection. Between God's love. And our love for each other. That point. Is the transfer. To our dead. Selfish hearts. His life. And His love. So that by virtue of the new birth, His nature is in us, and His love becomes our love, and His life becomes our life. That's the meaning of the new birth. So the simple answer to the question, what's the connection between God's love for us and our love for other people, the answer is the new birth is the connection. Now that's plain in this text and John shows it the link between God's love for us and our love for each other in at least two ways. We'll develop these in some detail. The first way is that he focuses on God's nature as love and says that God is love, and since we are born of him, that which is born of him has his nature. and since he is love, we love. That's the first way that he talks about it. The second way that he talks about it is in this text to talk about God manifesting his love. First is being love. And then showing love. And in the manifestation of love, he has reference specifically to the sending of the Son into the world to become the propitiation for our sins and that we might have eternal life through him. So let's take those two one at a time. The first is he's forging the link between God's love for us and our love for each other, by focusing first on God's nature as love. So let's go to verses 7 and 8. First John 4, verses 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Now notice he says two different things. In verse seven, He says love is from God. And in verse 8, he says God is love. Those two things, love is from God and God is love, are not at all at odds, are they? The reason they're not at odds is because when he says that Love is from God. He doesn't mean from God like a letter is from the mailman. Or even like a letter is from a friend. Because a letter is just kind of there, objective, in the hand, has nothing to do with the nature of the mailman. It's there. That's not the meaning of from here. He means... Love is from God the way light is from the sun, and the way heat is from fire. And so you can see immediately, there's no conflict between love being from God and God being love. That's what you would expect if God were love. You expect light from the sun, you expect heat from fire, you expect love from love. John's point is that in the new birth, this aspect of the divine nature becomes part of who we are. Christianity is real, real connection with the divine. When the miracle of the new birth happens, something of God is in us. And he's focusing here on love. Verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's really profound. I can't do justice to that. I'll just say it again. When we love one another... God abides in us. He is love. We are loving with that love. God is in us. And His love is perfected in us. So when you're born again, God Himself is imparted to you, comes to you, by His Spirit, He dwells in you, and He sheds abroad in your heart His love by His presence, by His very reality. Indwelling you, being love in you and through you. Notice it says His love in verse 12. His love. The love that you have as a born-again person for other people. Is no mere imitation. It is God's love. It's His love. That's how we know we're born again. We have His nature. We're united to Him. It's an extension of His love in us to others. So the first Way that John deals with the connection between God's love and our love for people, God's love for us and our love for people, is to say that his nature is to be love and our loving and that nature connect at the point of the new birth. When you are born again, that love becomes your love for others. That life becomes your life. You're not dead anymore. You're alive. You're not selfish anymore. You're loving. You're a child of God. A chip off the old block. That's the first point. Here's the second one. Namely... This text doesn't just deal with the love of God as an expression of his nature. It deals with it as a manifestation of his activity. So verses 9 and 10 and 11. Let's read that. In this, the love of God was made manifest. So there it is. That's the word I'm focusing on. In this, the love of God is made manifest among us. God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. So in John's mind, the great manifestation of the love of God for us is the sending of His Son into the world. Specifically to do what? To be, verse 10, to be the propitiation for our sins. What, what does that mean? Propitiation, meaning, God is angry at me in my sin. He is just, He is holy, and I am a sinner, I have disregarded him and belittled him and neglected him and scorned him and shamed him and lived all kinds of ways that are totally out of sync with the infinite worth of his glory, and I deserve his wrath. And he knows that, and if he were only a God of justice and only a God of wrath, I would be finished. But the amazing thing here is he's not only that. The chief manifestation of His love is that now He sends His Son to be the wrath bearer and wrath remover. That's the meaning of propitiation. When a person is propitiated, the anger that they have goes away. So God's anger toward you is gone because of Christ. Now get the full force of this. God the Father unilaterally removed His own wrath by sending His Son. God's wrath is dealt with by God's love through God's Son. And John says... That is the greatest manifestation of love that ever was. First John 3:16: "By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. So now there's not just sending and propitiation. Here he nails it. How did it happen? Answer. He laid down his life. He died. He died intentionally. By this we know love. By this we know love. This is 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life. I lay down my life. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And if I lay it down, I can take it again. Good Friday and Easter are the choice of Jesus Christ. He does what he does intentionally. And he chose in covenant with the Father that he would lay down his life so that we would not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice something else he stresses in verse 10. In this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son. What's He guarding against there? In this is love. Not! Why is He, what's this not for? What's, what does He see in us that we're prone to do? That he's saying, don't do that. What is it? In this is love. In this is love. The nature of love and the origin of love. It isn't in you. Maybe that propensity is rooted right in the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. This is the great commandment. We might be prone to think, Oh, oh, my love, my love. That's the, that's the issue here. My love. Got to produce love here. Love starts here. Love is defined here. And he's saying, No! No! This is love, not that you loved, but that He loved and sent His Son. Love starts with God. Love is defined by God. All of your love is an echo and derivative from that love. Don't get it turned around. I gotta love Him so that He'll love me. He's just pleading with us. Don't make your love the definition of love and don't make your love the beginning of love. It isn't defined by you. It doesn't begin with you. It is defined by God sending Jesus and it begins with God's nature. So let's summarize where we've been so far in these two ways that John deals with the connection between God's love for us and our love for people. The first way was it's his nature to love and when we're born again, we have that nature within us and our old selfishness is replaced by that love and and our old deadness is replaced by that life. And then the second way was there is a manifestation of that love and that manifestation is at its paramount expression the sending of the Son into the world to lay down his life to become the... Punishment removing, wrath absorbing, justice satisfying, propitiation for our sins. And when that happens, the new birth doesn't just look at it from outside and copy it. Look at verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. What does ought mean there? How does that ought work? If you forgot everything I've said so far and everything he's written in the previous Five verses, you might say, well, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? It says, if God loved us this way, then we should look at it and fulfill our duty and our obligation to copy it. Do that. And that would be the way you would interpret that verse, the way you try to live that verse. He so loved you, now you ought, could do this now. You ought to do it that way. If you forgot everything else in the book, you would say that. John has not forgotten what he said. You read it again, verse 7 and 8. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love doesn't know God, because God is love. So, when he says, if you were loved by God this way, you ought to love this way, he means you ought to do this like a fish ought to swim in water. You ought to do this the way birds ought to fly in the air. You ought to do this the way living beings should breathe. You ought to do this the way peaches ought to be sweet. You ought to do this the way lemons ought to be sour. You ought to do this the way hyenas ought to laugh. That's what ought means here. Because... It's rooted in the new birth. Don't abstract certain sentences out of 1 John and turn glorious realization into mere imitation. Don't do that. He's not saying, watch God love and copy Him. He's saying, watch God love you And believe and know it and be changed by it and be swept through by it and then be it. That's what he's saying. And of course it's a duty. But if you focus on the ought abstracted from the transformation of the new birth and the indwelling of the Spirit and the empowering of God Almighty abiding in you, doing His own love through you, you won't have Christianity You'll have moralism. Read the whole book and keep all the sentences together. So yes, there is an external impulse that we see in history. He loved us. Look at that. That's outside of us. It's coming at me. It's hitting me strong. I see love in that manifestation. But because of the new birth, it's just not hitting me and then dragging me to do my duty. It's hitting me and going right through me. It's swallowing me up. And that's becoming me. What a love. What a Savior. Would we not want to be permeated by this God? Indeed, if we're born again, that's what's happening. Now, what we've seen is two ways that John deals with the connection between God's love for us and our love for people. The first one is his nature becoming part of us through the new birth, and the other is his manifestation of his love in history, now not just creating a pattern to imitate, but a reality that's being realized within us. And so as it comes to us from outside, it's going right through us, That leaves one thing I want to do. I want to try to apply in two ways to our church how, if this were happening among us, it would look. It is happening among us. I see evidences of it. I want to fan that flame. I want to feed that fire by two closing applications of this text. So here's what I'm doing. I'm observing the reality that God is love. We are born again, children of that God. Life and love are flowing in us. And it's supposed to look a certain way so that we see it, the world sees it, and we're different. There are two of them. There's more than two in this book, but I'm gonna only deal with two. Number one. Let's go to chapter three, verses 11 through 14 for the first application. Verse 11. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain. Who was of the evil one and murdered his brother? And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's application number one. Very strange. You should ask me, so you think there might be a spate of murders here? And you're going to guard us from killing each other? I mean, that's a good question not only for here, but did John fret that these Christians were going to kill each other? He says so many good things about these Christians. That's not He's, he's not worried about murder in the church. I'm not either. It's never happened. We've had one of our members murdered, but it wasn't by one of the other members, Tim White. So what's he saying? If he's not really concerned about a big murder problem in the local church, why does he bring Cain up and point out that he killed Abel? And he says, don't be like him. Like, Well, of course, <laughs> we're not going to kill anybody. <laughs> That's not what he focuses on, is it? What questions does he ask about this murder? He asks, why'd that happen? That's what he's concerned about. He's going to see something in why this happened that's really relevant right across the board in this church. Verse 12, why did he murder him? End of verse 12. Answer. Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. So he did, he's not saying he killed him because he was bad. That's not the point. He's drawing attention to one specific way the human heart works. He was bad his brother was good. He killed him because he was good. And he was bad. That's what he's focusing on. What's that? What's going on in the human heart when that happens? I mean, you can be bad and not kill people. But evidently, bad rub up against enough good, there can be so much anger and so much bitterness. We're going to get rid of this good. I'm going to Shoot this mirror until it is shattered. That's what's going on. The human heart that is falling short in some way is so easily angered by people who are making progress where we're failing. Get resentful. We don't want to be around them because they show up our bad habits. Our bad attitudes are exposed when we're around able types. Now, we don't kill them usually, but we have ways of nullifying them. One, avoid them, for goodness sakes, they make you feel bad. More shrewd then avoidance is to counter-criticize some weak point that they have. Because the best way to nullify someone's goodness is to criticize their badness. It deflects all the attention away from how they're making some progress, better than you are, and if you could just point out the other part of that person's deal, then you don't have to deal with it anymore. And in none of that are we doing what we're supposed to do, namely humbling ourselves and dealing with our issues. Cain, if you got a good brother, learn something. Don't kill him. Bethlehem, if you know anybody who's making some progress in grace, if they're a thankful person or an encouraging person or a pure person or a reverent person or a kind person, and you around them feel sort of second best. You know what love does? Love rejoices with those who are making progress. Love is humble. Love's not arrogant, not envious, it's not jealous, it's not resentful. Love sees people growing and it says, yes, Lord, yes, yes. And Lord, help me too. I want to grow some too. That's love talking. So my first plea is not that we don't kill each other. Please don't. But that we love, that is, when the love of God is holding sway in your heart, the love of God is holding sway. I mean, his love for you and for the church is holding sway in your heart. The differences between you and others as they have superiorities morally or in gifts, those differences are never an occasion for envy or jealousy or resentment, but joy. You think we could do that together? Be a beautiful community. If every time I saw something about you where I'd like to be better and you're better, it made me happy, we'd be a beautiful community. We would say it. You should say it. You should say it. A good way not to be made resentful by it is to say it. You know, the way you talk to people is so good. You're just good at it. Oh, it's I were good at it. Would you pray for me? You encourage people so well. You seem to be a thankful person. You don't grumble like I do. I like to be around you. Maybe I'll catch it. That's love talking. That's number one. Here's number two. This is chapter 3, verses 16 to 18. The last one. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love Abide in Him. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. He says three things there about loving each other that I just long for God to work among us. That's why I'm saying it. Just like John longed for this to be his church. First, of the three. First. Verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now he doesn't mean there's not loving talk and angry, bitter, hateful talk. Of course there is. You can hate people with your talk. You can do a lot of damage with your talk. He's, he's not arguing with that. He means when there's a situation In which a deed needs to be done, you don't talk. You do the deed. Right? And you just talk when a deed needs to be done, you're not loving. You try to substitute talk for deed, you're not loving. That's what he's saying. So the first observation is that the love that God has in us shows itself in Deeds, I mean flesh and blood, get off your rear end and get in the car and go to the hospital. Deeds, put the pan on the stove, make the soup, go next door. Deeds, call up, offer the babysitting deeds, 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 deeds is the way we love each other. If God is in us, that's the first thing that he says here. Second, verse 16 at the end, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That means that when a deed needs to be done, if it costs you a lot, you do it. Jesus died for you. He didn't just die. I mean, dying is one thing and it can be quick and easy. It wasn't. It was long and it was horrible. And he chose every minute of it because he could have stopped at any time. He just kept choosing to suffer and choosing to suffer and choosing to suffer and choosing to suffer. And, to suffer. and I'm just saying, how are you doing? Are you choosing to suffer for anybody? Or does the moment it gets costly, you bail? I didn't, I'm not in it for this. Whoa, well, what are you in it for? He who would follow after me and be my disciple, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. It says... We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. It is written large over Christianity. You are called to die. I die every day, Paul said. Are you sacrificing for anybody? Or are all of your choices comfort choices? I won't do that because it's inconvenient. I won't do that because it's hard. I won't do that because it hurts. I won't do that because it's tiring. I won't do that because I'm not suited. I won't, I won't, I won't. What do you do? So Bethlehem, let's so experience being loved by the lay down your life savior that we do that. Not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's easy. But I am saying at the end of the day, there is a profound sense of God-given well-being as you lay your head down on the couch, absolutely exhausted because of having spent yourself for someone else. Oh, how deep go the joys. That's number two. Number three, verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now I'm just being more specific. I started by saying the love that God has and is in us is practical. Deeds, not just talk. Second, I said the deeds might be costly and you should have the lay down your life mindset because of Christ And now I'm saying it involves stuff, money, cars, computers, books, clothing, house, stuff. If anyone has this world's goods, by the way, that word right there, used one other time in First John, Chapter two, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride in possessions. Same word. Here's the great battle. I love my stuff. Love of God says, I own the universe. If heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified with Him, it's all mine. It's just a matter of years until I inherit everything. Why would I want to? This is mine. This is mine. You need it? Well, uh, 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 I, think there's a, I think there's a place downtown. The world is not impressed if we're not different at this point. If Christians love their stuff the way the world loves their stuff, forget your witness. We should hold our stuff so loosely. Any place a Christian needs your stuff, give them your stuff. Creates problems, know that? Because there are about 800 million of them in the world who are poor, dirt poor, extreme poor. I'm so glad the global diaconate exists. One little thing, one little thing, not to excuse our conscience about the personal level, just one little thing. I'm glad there's hundreds of thousands of dollars flowing to the poorest of the poor through this church as you give to TCT. I'm really glad about that. It's not enough. You meet real human beings in the church, and they have needs. Don't love stuff. Let's be free. Those who desire to be rich fall into many temptations and pangs that pierce men through with destruction. Don't want to be rich. It's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said. So the second illustration, the first one is, let's be a community where love looks at other people's superiority, whether in some good habit they're growing in or some attitude that they've cultivated or some gift that they have and feel no resentment but only blessing and gladness and a desire to have my own sinfulness that's being exposed, remedied, and I want to repent, and I want to grow. I don't shoot the mirror and shatter it because it keeps showing me what I'm like. I get in front of the mirror and say, way to go. Well done. That's one. And the second one is, he laid down his life for us, and we should lay down our lives for each other. And if anybody has this world's goods and the other needs it, And you say, no, how can the love of God abide in you? And so practical deeds of love and practical attitudes of mutual support and rejoicing. Would you just pray with me? Downtown campus, north campus, would you pray with me that Bethlehem confirm that we are born again? That the love of God abides within us. Let's pray. Your love is very great. And I praise you for it. Holy Week is about the sending of the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And therefore, Holy Week is about your love Would you open our eyes to see it and sensitize our spiritual hearts to apprehend it, feel it, enjoy it, commune with you in it, live it, show it, demonstrate it. Free us from the love of stuff, from the love of comforts. Make us willing to take risks, to deny ourselves, to be inconvenienced, and even to suffer so that others might live the way you suffered, so that we might live. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.